Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 7, The Assyrian Empire. Let's have a look at previous mentions of the Assyrian Empire during this podcast series. If we go back to episode 4, which concentrated on the first Babylonian dynasty, we went into a good amount of detail regarding the old Assyrian Empire. Assyria takes its name from the city of Ashur, which appears to have started out as a small town that served as a good stop-off point for 3rd millennium BCE Sumerians looking to trade with peoples of the Iranian plateau. The demand for goods was healthy and this would be good for the health of Ashur. It was in a great strategic location on the banks of the Tigris in northern Mesopotamia and subsequent southern Mesopotamian empires such as the Akkadians and the Neo-Sumerians ensured that Ashur was kept under their direct influence. It would be during an intermediate period of southern Mesopotamia that Ashur would need to learn to stand on its own two feet and take advantage of its opportunity for independence the Neo-Sumerian Empire had collapsed and the Assyrians had the infrastructure to become a self-governing kingdom in its own right. The people of Assyria were believed to be Semitic, like many of the other successful Mesopotamian dynasties. It is very likely that we can trace their origins to be from a similar route to the Akkadians and the Amorites for that reason. The Assyrians knew that their wealth would be coming from the mountainous regions directly to their north. By establishing trading posts in the Taurus mountain range, the Assyrians would be able to gather enough metals and precious stones to become an essential trade partner to its neighbours. We believe that during this period, the kings of Ashur went from living in tents to living in palaces with temples being built to honour the city's deities. One of the biggest political shifts of the old Assyrian period is when the Assyrian king Erishem II was removed from his position by Shamshi Adad. Shamshi Adad had been removed from the throne of his kingdom at the city of Turka in the modern Deir Ezzor, governorate of Syria. Shamshi Adad came back in style by not only taking back his local kingdom but by taking over the whole area of the old Assyrian Empire. After Shamshi Adad's death, the Babylonians under Hammurabi 
subjugated Assyrian lands, but that would not last, and the Assyrians would regain their independence after Hammurabi's death. Babylonian influence would shrink back down to the area around their main cities, and during the 16th century BCE would fall into the hands of the Kassites, a peoples from the Zagros Mountains to the east of Mesopotamia. The Assyrians recovered from Hammurabi's occupation during the 18th century BCE and consolidated their position for the next couple of centuries. But just to their west, a new kingdom was emerging that would have a direct effect on the immediate future of the Assyrians. They were the Mitanni, and they took advantage of a quiet period for their neighbours, the Assyrians and the Hittites, to build up their power and influence in the region of northern Mesopotamia. The Mitanni became very powerful and soon subjugated the Assyrians and turned Assyria into a vassal state by the middle of the 15th century BCE. This was the end of the old Assyrian Empire. The Middle Assyrian Empire the Mitanni kingdom popped up in the void created by the halt in the expansions of both the Hittites and the Assyrians. Its power was comparatively short-lived though, sandwiched between the two larger powers, and by the start of the 14th century BCE, both the Hittites and the Assyrians were causing problems for the Mitanni. While the Mitanni were bickering, over their own monarchical succession. This would create a great impetus within the Assyrian peoples to begin to assert their right to independence over the Mitanni. It was the Assyrian king Eriba Adad who initiated the promotion of Assyrian politics at the Mitanni royal court, but it was actually his son Ashur-Ubalit who really turned the tables hard on the Mitanni by effectively taking over their lands and establishing diplomatic ties with the Egyptians, which in turn angered the Kassite Babylonians who felt pushed out into the cold. So the two mighty empires of the north by now were the Hittites and the Assyrians, who had been responsible for the final demise of the Mitanni. Even though they were neighbours, the Assyrians would have an eye on the Kassite Babylonians, while the Hittites were preoccupied with bickering over the lands of the Levant with Egypt. It was really after the Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BCE, fought between the Hittites and the Egyptians, that the political landscape of the Near East would change, and both the Hittites and the Egyptians agreed a peace treaty, not to fight with each other. Could it have been that both sides recognised the growing threat of the Assyrians and understood the value of not exhausting all of their resources fighting each other? The Assyrians were definitely showing a dangerous amount of interest in the lands of modern Syria, which were traditionally fought over by the Hittites, and the Egyptians. It was around the year 1247 
BCE that things would reach ahead between the Assyrians and their Hittite neighbours. And there's no surprise to discover that the tensions were over former Mitanni lands. However, it would turn out to be at the Battle of Nihria that the Assyrians would send the Hittites packing, and the Hittites would never really be the same again as they began to spiral towards their ultimate fate during the late Bronze Age collapse. It was the subsequent king of Assyria, Tukulti Ninurta, who would take advantage of the lack of a Hittite threat in the aftermath of the Battle of Nihria, to turn his attention to the other Assyrian enemy, Kassite Babylonia. Tukulti Ninurta, according to his own accounts, single-handedly captured the Kassite king, Kashtiliash IV, and deported him from Babylon, and, as one would expect from a conquest of Babylon, took the statue of Marduk, the city's deity. Tukulti Ninurta would subsequently dub himself the King of Kings. In the aftermath, the Assyrians would grant the Kassite Babylonians their lands back, but the ruler would effectively be puppet rulers, serving the Assyrians as their overlords. This would attract attention from the Elamites to the east of Kassite Babylonians. The Elamites were always somewhat interested in the spoils of Kassite Babylonia, and with puppet kings in place, Elam saw an opportunity to invade. Georges Roux's book on ancient Iraq describes the Elamite invasion of Kassite Babylonia as southern Mesopotamia being plundered as it had never been plundered. The Late Bronze Age Collapse As we discovered in the last podcast, after the year 1200 BCE, we can see the collapse of Near East as all the empires and the kingdoms either disappeared off of the world map, disintegrated into smaller kingdoms, or considerably reduced in size. It is fair to say that Assyria was initially the least affected of all the Near East empires. Right up until the mid-11th century BCE, the Assyrian Empire was still an impressive size. However, it would be after this that the Assyrian Empire itself would begin to fragment. Despite this, the heartland of Assyria around the cities of Ashur and Nineveh remained firmly Assyrian and was somewhat impenetrable, while peoples of differing ethnicities were moving into the outlying lands of the Assyrian Empire, ultimately taking control of them. One of the most well-known confederation of peoples who were a challenge to the Assyrians during the post-Late Bronze Age collapse Dark Age were the Arameans. In much the same way as Amorites had dominated the lands between empires a thousand years previous, the Arameans would do the same, fragmenting into pockets of peoples settling pretty much anywhere that the Assyrians were not. Similarly, 
to the Amorites, the Arameans were descendants of Semitic speakers and had developed their own language called Aramaic, which incidentally is believed by many historians to be the language spoken by none other than Jesus. However, the Arameans would set up their own little kingdoms based around the cities of the Fertile Crescent. The origin of the Arameans was the biblical region of Aram, which contains the city of Aleppo in the modern-day country of Syria. The Neo-Assyrian Empire The Assyrians had been restricted to an essential existence. All lands distant from the centre of the empire had to be abandoned. Assyria was at a low point, but at least unlike other pre-late Bronze Age collapse empires, at least it was still there. Arameans were settling all the lands around the Assyrian kingdom. The one thing that saved Assyria from being completely fragmented was the fact that its defence of itself was formidable. It was at the end of the 10th century BCE that fortunes began to change for the Assyrians. The Assyrians had been good at keeping foreign invaders such as the Arameans at bay, something which their southern neighbours of Babylonia could not do, with the lands being fought over by Arameans, Kassites, Elamites and Assyrians. It was from 911 BCE onwards that we recognise the Neo-Assyrian Empire coming into existence and there were successful campaigns into Babylonia but Assyria were also making expansions into territories to their northwest, including the land of Urartu which is towards the eastern border of the modern country of Turkey. It appears that the Assyrians had discovered that ruthless aggression was the way to success in the 10th and 9th centuries BCE and the Assyrians were more than happy to plunder the lands and riches of their neighbours in order to expand their wealth and their influence. The Assyrians would arrive home from campaigns with considerable amounts of goodies, including animals such as farm animals and beasts of burden, including horses, rich garments such as ornately decorated clothing, and items of furniture including tables and couches. There were also considerable amounts of metals that were taken, including copper, lead, gold and silver, but possibly more importantly, iron. Iron, as it was for the Hittites in previous centuries, was an advantage over bronze in that it was durable and hard-wearing by comparison. You would sooner wear iron armour as opposed to bronze. You would also want iron weaponry as opposed to bronze also. Sharp sword and dagger edges were sharper when made from iron, and what's more is that they stayed sharper for longer. When 
Ashurnasirpal II became the Assyrian king in 883 BCE, he would turn the Assyrian kingdom into an empire. Ashurnasirpal II would lead successful campaigns to the west during his reign, striking fear into the hearts of anybody who was unfortunate enough to be in his way. Ashurnasirpal saw himself as a mortal man to be worshipped and expected to be treated as such by those he conquered. He would use the labour of enslaved captives to build his new secular capital city at Nimrud. When Ashurnasirpal II reached the banks of the Mediterranean Sea, he ceremonially washed his weapons in the sea, just as Sargon of Akkad had done a thousand years previously. Over 150 years after the Assyrians had to abandon their lands on the banks of the Mediterranean, they were back and claiming tribute from their new subjects in order to further strengthen the army for more campaigns. So what was it that was so special about the Assyrians and why did they survive where all others failed? The question is even more relevant when it is suggested by historians that the heartland of Assyria was not as rich in natural resources as one might expect. It may have been that this in itself was a reason why the Assyrians were forced into an aggressive stance in order to plunder from their neighbours and in turn survive. They would need to be expert warriors and have the best equipment available. Not only this, but the Assyrians struck fear into the hearts of anyone standing in their way. Ashurnasirpal II was utterly ruthless in his treatment of those citizens of his conquered territories, cutting off body parts of prisoners of war and setting fire to children. It really makes for grim reading, but for those who knew what was coming, there may have been a strong desire to wave the white flag before the same fate was possible for them. Over the course of the next 100 years after Ashurnasirpal II's death in 859 BCE, the Assyrians would struggle to maintain their gains, being pushed back inland by the occupants of the Levant coastline and being hit by plagues. Also, the rocky relationship with the Babylonians continued to be an issue to face, as well as the Kingdom of Van, which is synonymous with the Uratu, a region mentioned earlier in the podcast. In the year 749 BCE, things would begin to change dramatically for the Neo-Assyrian Empire, as the new king was Tiglath-Pileser III, who would instigate administrative reforms and over the course of the next 18 years, the map of the Near East would alter again. The Assyrians had grown tired of previous regimes and as such they decided to revolt against the royal court and Tiglath-Pileser was installed as the new king. He would immediately start to reform the way that the country was being run by creating new political regions 
that would be governed much more effectively than previously. Around 80 provinces were created in the first seven years of Tiglath-Pileser's reign and as such each province would be governed by a loyal civil servant who would tax the population correctly and provide local forces to join the Assyrian army. The army would quickly become the best in the world. Some of the excavated artefacts reveal bronze scales which appear to belong to a form of lamella armour which is a type of armour made from small metal scales laced together. We can also find evidence of bows for archers. The bows would be created by using pieces of horn glued to wood and a sinew string attached to create the elasticity required to propel the arrow. The arrow itself would have a head made from iron and it's the successful use of iron which makes a difference. Iron was the new bronze and the Assyrians were very adept at using it. Archers would be accompanied by their own individual shield bearer who would enable the archer the time to fire the perfect shot in the heat of battle. The shield bearer would be carrying a huge shield which would effectively surround the archer from the front and from above thanks to the shield's curved lip. Although the shield was made from reeds, the archer's helmet was made from iron and would offer protection to the top and the sides of the head. It is believed that Assyrian archers had the capability to fire arrows as far as half a kilometre. With their iron-headed arrows which were cleverly carried in a quiver, the opposition had very little way to defend themselves, especially if they had been subjected to the work of the Assyrian slingers. The Assyrian slingers would accompany the Assyrian archers and they would attempt to destroy opposition shields so that the archers could have had more chance of finding their targets. The Assyrians often used slingers in the past, but during the reign of Tiglath-Pileser III, they appear to have been very much a part of the organised unit, now with their own lamella armour and their own iron helmets. The bulk of the army, however, would be made up of heavy infantry. These soldiers would carry their own lance and shield, with the lance being useful at close quarters. The shields would be made from leather and would be held on the arm for defending specific attacks as opposed to the standing shields for protecting the archers. Cavalry and chariots would accompany this fighting unit and the results were incredible. Suddenly the Assyrians had become an almost unstoppable force. The Assyrians also seem to have a serious weapon in the siege tower which could be put to use when besieging an enemy city. A battering ram protruding from a mobile tower, complete with archers at the top of the tower and very likely a large amount of infantry using the mobile tower for cover. They would even cover the vehicle in wet hides to prevent the enemy from setting it alight. After a successful siege, 
Tiglath-Pileser III had a reputation for kidnapping the city's elite as a means of removing those individuals most likely to incite a rebellion. Another interesting factor in the way that the Assyrians dealt with conquered enemies was to take them en masse to a completely different part of the empire and resettle them. This may sound bizarre in principle, but it would make these populations more dependent on their Assyrian rulers and less likely to rebel. This would also create a multicultural Assyrian population as people began to lose a part of their ethnic identity since they were no longer living in their homeland. In the books of Kings, in the Hebrew Bible, there is a reference to the Assyrian resettlement of Israelite people elsewhere in Assyria. Through campaigns, Tiglath-Pileser III would re-establish a Mediterranean coastline for the Assyrian Empire. When the Chaldeans seized the throne of Babylon in 734 BCE, Tiglath-Pileser had the ability to deploy a force to seize it back and subsequently Tiglath-Pileser decided to rule Babylon himself, therefore bringing Babylonia directly into the Assyrian Empire. By the time of Tiglath-Pileser's death in 727 BCE, the Assyrian Empire had reached the city of Tyre, just north of Israel. Tyre itself still exists today as a city in the modern country of Lebanon. Sargon II It is not certain exactly how Sargon II acquired the throne, but the general thinking is that he was quite possibly a son of Tiglath-Pileser III. His reign began in 721 BCE and it was clear that his huge Assyrian empire was surrounded by enemies. Certainly the Judeans just south of Israel in the Levant were nervous about the Assyrians following the mass deportation of Israelites which appears to be a recognised event in the Hebrew Bible. The fact that Assyria had influence over the Medes to their east meant that the trade routes into Elam and Babylonia had been affected. The Egyptians had a close eye on Assyrian ambitions in the Levant as the Assyrians acquired more lands into its empire. The kingdom of Van, also known as the Euratians, were losing ground to the Assyrians who were pushing the Euratians back behind Lake Van. In short, Assyria was surrounded by enemies but was strong enough to deal with it. Sargon II's Assyria immediately concentrated on further expanding the empire and would look in all directions and maybe this is because in this case the best form of defence is to attack. The Assyrians would chip away at the lands of the fragmented tribes of Anatolia which are sometimes referred to as the Neo-Hittites. Sargon's armies would sack the Euratian city of Mushashir and the kingdom would become obedient to the Assyrians. Such was the might of the Assyrians that we can see a rare pact 
by the Babylonians and the Elamites against the Assyrians. However, the Assyrians were able to separate the two kingdoms by taking land between the two kingdoms right up to the banks of the Persian Gulf. So by the time of Sargon II's death in 705 BCE, the empire was even larger. Sennacherib Sennacherib's Assyrian Empire stretched from central Anatolia in the west to Euratia in the north, to Medes in the east and to the Persian Gulf in the southeast, and Judah in the southwest. Upon the news of the death of his father, Sargon II, Assyria's enemies were ready to rebel or attack the great empire in hope that Sennacherib would be a less formidable military ruler. There were certainly stirrings to the north of the empire, but certainly Sennacherib's attention would definitely be most occupied in the south of his empire. Initially, the lands of the Levant and, buoyed by the anti-Assyrian stance of the Egyptians and Babylonians, the Judeans defied Assyrian rule. This prompted Sennacherib to campaign into Judah in around 701 BCE, an attempt to keep the Judeans under his control. Some of the cities and towns of Judah were besieged, such as Lachish, which can be found in the modern-day country of Israel. Ultimately, Sennacherib would turn his attention to the Judean capital of Jerusalem, which itself was besieged until the Judean king, Hezekiah, conceded defeat. Many Judean settlements were destroyed in this process and maybe around 200,000 Judeans, or Jewish people as they may otherwise be called, were exiled. The Assyrians had always had to play a much more diplomatic game when it came to Babylonia. The Chaldean Babylonians, who were represented by their king, Marduk Apleadina II, had gathered the support of the Elamites, the Arameans, and the Arabs, who were the peoples of the lands between Babylonia and the Levant, and created a united group of peoples against the Assyrians. Sennacherib had to take serious measures against the Babylonians. Initially, Marduk Apleadina II was forced into exile in Elam, where he died. The Elamites tried desperately to crown Marduk Apleadina II's descendants in a bid to keep Babylonia strong in the face of Assyria. However, Sennacherib ultimately besieged and destroyed the city of Babylon in around 689 BCE, ensuring that Babylon remained under Assyrian rule. Now, the Assyrian Empire was huge, taking up a large amount of Arabian land also, but this was not the end. Now, just to go off on a bit of a tangent, I stumbled across some information about a technological advancement which one might believe was invented in classical Greece, but there appears to be cuneiform inscriptions to suggest otherwise. The machine is called the Archimedes Screw, and its purpose is to transfer water by simply turning a handle. 
the water is simply moved by a screw-shaped surface within a pipe, just by simply turning the crankshaft. A very simple piece of engineering, attributed, as is obvious by the name, to the Greek engineer from the 3rd century BCE, Archimedes. However, the cuneiform inscription suggests that this kind of engineering existed during Sennacherib's Assyrian Empire, and it may ultimately have irrigated that wonder of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Ashurbanipal Ashurbanipal became the king of Assyria in 668 BCE following the death of his father Esarhaddon. Esarhaddon had rebuilt Babylon following its destruction by his own father Sennacherib. It was deemed a necessary task to please the gods, especially Marduk, who, as you may recall, was the deity of Babylon. The most notable achievement of Esarhaddon's reign was his successful campaign into Egypt, where he successfully besieged and captured Memphis. When Esarhaddon returned to his own capital city, Nineveh, the Egyptians took Memphis back and Esarhaddon died on his way to recapture it. It would be down to his son, Urshabanipal, to pick things up. The Assyrians and the Kushite Egyptians battle with one another for supremacy in Egypt. The Assyrian army was ultimately able to take control of Memphis and sack the Egyptian city of Thebes before expelling the Kushites from Egypt. As the Assyrians were not able to directly rule Egypt from their heartlands, they would install their own puppet ruler. It is at this point that we can see the Assyrian Empire at its greatest extent, with the subjugation of Babylonia and Euratia, the entire Levant coastline including Judea, large portions of the lands of the Medes and the Elamites, and now Egypt too. There had never been an empire so impressive in size. It wouldn't be long before the Egyptians took back control of their own affairs, and in 654 BCE, the Assyrian armies were expelled from Egypt. Ashurbanipal was still able to maintain a good trade relationship with the Egyptians though. Ashurbanipal's older brother, Shamashum-Ukin, was for some reason overlooked to become the emperor of Syria, but he was installed as the king of Babylon, although it would only have restricted autonomy as a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire. Things appeared to be somewhat peaceful between Babylon and Assyria until Shamashum-Ukin decided that it should have been him, as the older brother, to have had rule over the empire, and he conspired with the Phoenicians, the Judeans, the Elamites, the Egyptians, the Lydians, the Arabs, and the Chaldeans to create a plot to overthrow Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal discovered the plot and decided to make things difficult within Babylonia by besieging its cities. Ultimately, Shamashumukin realised that the game was up and committed suicide 
in around 648 BCE, leaving Ashurbanipal to install a Chaldean puppet ruler. Another highlight for Ashurbanipal was his sacking of the Elamite capital of Susa in 639 BCE. Ashurbanipal had ruled over the Assyrian Empire at its height and had managed to maintain its size and health until his own death in the year 627 BCE. It was after this time that Assyrian fortunes would change. After the death of Ashurbanipal, the Babylonians under their king Nabopolassar revolted against the Assyrians and this escalated into all-out war. This meant that the Assyrians were not able to offer support to the Lydians and the Eurasians who were in turn being attacked by peoples from the Eurasian steppes to the north of the whole region such as the Scythians and the Sumerians. The Euratians in particular were left out in the cold by their Assyrian overlords. In the meantime, the Babylonians were able to take control of the Sumerian lands to the south, including the city of Uruk and the Persian Gulf coastline. It would then be the Medes in the east who came under new rule from the year 625 BCE, under the king Cyaxares, who would deal with the nomadic steppe people, the Scythians and the Sumerians, to revolt against their Assyrian overlords and support the Babylonian cause against the Assyrians from around the year 615 BCE. It was from this point that the Assyrians were under the most intense pressure. The Babylonians and the Medes had already enjoyed major victories against the Assyrians at Arafah. However, the Assyrians had prevented the invaders from conquering Assyria. Still, the Medes and the Babylonians kept coming and the Medes eventually took Assyria in 614 BCE and then in 612 BCE, they would join forces with the Babylonians to besiege the Assyrian capital, city of Nineveh. The Battle of Nineveh in 612 BCE involved a three-month siege by the Medes and the Babylonians against the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which contained the Assyrian king, Zinsharishkun. The outcome of this invasion was somewhat inevitable given the progress of events since the death of Ashurbanipal just 15 years previously, the emperor of the mightiest empire to have graced planet Earth. Nineveh fell and the Assyrian king Shinsharishkun was killed. The Assyrian elite fled as Nineveh was destroyed, suffering the same fate as those other important Assyrian cities of Ashur and Nimrud. The Assyrians tried desperately to revive their kingdom from the city of Haran, which can be found in the far south of modern-day Turkey on its border with Syria, 
However, the Medes and the Babylonians were not about to allow the Assyrians any opportunity to regroup and recover. And in 610 BCE, both the Babylonian king Nabopolassar and the Median king Cyaxares oversaw the fall of Haran and the end of the Assyrian Empire. The final word should go to the Babylonian king Nabopolassar. I slaughtered the land of Subarum. I turned the hostile land into heaps and ruins. The Assyrian, who since distant days had ruled over all the peoples and with his heavy yoke had brought injury to the people of the land, his feet from Akkad I turned back, his yoke I threw off. Next time, we're going to take a special look at one of the campaigns of the Assyrians and see if we can learn some more about this incredible era. We will look closely at Sennacherib's siege of Lachish in our first military conflict episode. Thank you so much for listening to this great episode about the mighty Assyrian Empire, probably the biggest empire, well I'm I'm pretty sure it is the biggest empire that we've tackled so far. So that was a big episode, plenty of information, it rambled on for a bit longer than expected but such was the gravity of the whole episode and the content that it really needed to be done that way and I'm afraid you know, 40 minutes, well, fair enough, I thought, for the Assyrians. It, it had to be done. There was so much to pack in. The amount of listeners to the podcast is going up all the time, and I think it may be that we've got a great uh, library of episodes now, so there's more means to attract new listeners now, and uh, we've got more and more new people joining us, so thank you to all those people who have joined us and started uh, coming along with us on this journey through the history of the world and uh, all uh, the new episodes now are being listened to by more people each week than the previous week so things really on the up for the podcast so thank you so much for joining us okay we just need to quickly run through some messages then Uh, a few reviews coming through some five star reviews on apple podcasts uh, itunes Uh, Thank you so much for the kind reviews and the kind amount of stars. Uh, We've got this one by Frank B.R. It says, best in class, five stars, really solid history podcast, educated but approachable, worth your time. Uh, Another five-star review from Ephil Nikofsin, who says, fantastic pod, interesting, direct takes delivered in an easy-to-understand style. And then uh, my favourite one, this one, is by Chinese Girl's Husband, who's given us five stars, put solid podcast, great accent, I like the host's accent. Well, if that appears to be the highlight of the podcast for Chinese Girl's Husband, 
is the accent. So it takes all sorts and uh, everyone's got their own reasons for listening to the podcast. But I'd like to thank you all individually for the five-star ratings on iTunes. It really helps us to gather more interest. Now, if you follow us on Twitter, then you may have seen uh, Francine Lane posted uh, an excellent picture of Queen Puabi's headdress. If you remember, Queen Puabi was uh, from the third dynasty of Or. She was buried um, in Or at the Royal Cemetery uh, with a huge entourage of people, animals and uh, stuff like the most ceremonial burial I think we've seen to date. Francine says, I'm a few podcasts behind, but love the one on awe. I had the pleasure of seeing an exhibit that included Puabi's exquisite headdress and jewellery in New York City a few years ago. Here it is in all its glory. Um, Yes, the photo, absolutely, it's a a great photo and it really does uh, demonstrate all of that gold, ornate sort of leaf designs and flowers um, it really just demonstrates the skill, the craftsmanship um, of these people from 4,000 years ago. Often I find that people can't believe, they're like absolutely astonished by the skill and ability of people from 4,000 years ago. Well, hopefully this podcast just goes to show you that it comes from thousands and indeed tens of thousands of years of honing crafts and arts. And we shouldn't really be that surprised at the capability of our forefathers even if we are talking 4,000 years ago they were still very capable able and uh, considerably brilliant craftsmen and Queen Puabi's headdress uh, really does demonstrate that and to be honest with you I mean if you was to like sort of walk up to her on the streets of Orr you would just absolutely be gobsmacked. You'd know that she was someone special. So uh, go and have a look at that picture. It's uh, it's great to see. Now, if you're feeling a bit generous and want to support the podcast, by all means, come along and do it at our Patreon page. The links are on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and also at the History of the World uh, podcast.com blog page. Um, we, you know, there are expenses to running the podcast. We have to pay for the website. Um, we we have bought equipment. Books um, are always useful for this subject matter. So there is an expenditure, and uh, it'd be great if uh, you was able to help cover it. It's not obligatory because this podcast was started out with the intention of it being a free resource for everybody, for the general public and uh, my wish is that it will remain that way forever so, or for as long as possible and um, so it's not obligatory to donate and you won't miss out but if you would like to help the running costs please visit our Patreon page there is an awards um, tier sort of platform now so as as is standard on Patreon or Patreon whatever you prefer to call it um, if you uh, if you donate one dollar or more per month, you will become a member of the History of the World Podcast Society, and you will have your name mentioned during the podcast. 
if you donate $10 or more per month, and that includes those who accumulate $10 in donations, you'll become a native of the History of the World Podcast Society, and all natives will be able to have one question answered at the end of a podcast episode. One of our patrons already qualifies for that, so we're waiting for his question. Um, if you uh, donate $25 or more per month or or accumulate $25 in donations, you will be a javelin-armed skirmisher of the History of the World Podcast Society and all javelin-armed skirmishers will be able to access uh, full episode transcripts, uh, which can be useful if you're... If you want to study this more thoroughly, and uh, there's a lot of strange names used during the podcasts, and uh, with the transcripts you can actually sort of read those names, so that can be handy. Um, if you um, if you donate fifty dollars or more per month, or or accumulate fifty dollars in donations, then you'll be a spearman of the History of the World Podcast Society, and all spearmen will be sent a History of the World gift pack through the post. Uh, we you probably will have a mug and a mouse mat or something, things like that. Maybe a fridge magnet. Who knows? Whatever I can, uh, whatever I can throw together with the history of the world podcast logo and uh, get into the post for you. Um, and uh, finally, if you donate a hundred dollars or more per month, uh, which you know has happened to certain podcasts, so it's not out of the question, but then, to be fair, if you accumulate $100 in donations, you will be a swordsman of the History of the World Podcast Society. All swordsmen will be invited to offer a specific subject for a full podcast episode. So how about that? So if you accumulate $100, you'll be able to ask me to commission an episode on the subject of your choice. How fantastic is that? So please do consider a donation. Otherwise, no problem, just enjoy the podcast because it is a free resource and it is meant to be a free resource and it is my pleasure to do it, so enjoy. Well, I'm going to round off now, that's plenty for this week, thanks very much. Next week, it's going to be a special episode, it's going to be a battle episode, the first of many battle episodes that will pop up from now on in the History of the World podcast. This one is going to concentrate on the Siege of Lakish. And we're going to find out a little bit more about the background, the events and the outcome and aftermath of this siege, this very important uh, Assyrian siege. So join us next week for the special battle episode. And until that time, I hope you have a fantastic week and we'll look forward to doing it all over again this time next week. The History of the World podcast is hosted by Audioboom. It is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Podcast Republic, Stitcher and TuneIn. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter.